Welcome to The Adapter's Advantage, the podcast that shares insider stories about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Get ready for an inspiring conversation about adapting to change from Alego, the all-in-one sales enablement platform built for success in a hybrid world. Let's dive right in. Hi, this is Mark Magnaca, and I want to welcome you to the next episode of the Adapter's Advantage podcast. Today, my guest is Brian Shortsleeve. Before we jump right in, I want to give you some background on Brian, because it's really quite an interesting and uh, varied background that we're going to be covering in this interview. And I think uh, a number of different things you're going to be able to pull out for benefit of your business. So Brian's passionate about helping founders and CEOs rapidly scale their companies. He works closely with management teams to drive growth through sales and go-to-market expansion and execution of strategic acquisitions. Prior to founding M33, Brian served as the chief administrator and acting general manager of the MBTA. And for those of you outside of Massachusetts, that's the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority or the the train system, if you will, around Boston. He was handpicked by Governor Charlie Baker in 2015 to develop and execute a plan to put the MBTA on the path to long-term fiscal sustainability. And during his tenure, Brian worked closely with the MBTA Fiscal and Management Control Board. He led efforts to balance the operating budget, modernize internal businesses, and rapidly accelerate the pace of capital investment in critical systems repairs and build the team and plan that led to this really uh, well-documented turnaround in what was called the Green Line Extension Project. Brian, so much to talk about. Welcome to the podcast. Well, Mark, thanks for having me on uh, this morning. I'm looking forward to it. So let's begin with this question, Brian. Uh, There's a lot of different things that you do in your current role as a co-founder of M33 Growth. Um, When you meet people for the first time and they say, so um, what do you do? How do you answer that question? What we do is, is, is very specific and we're extremely focused as a firm. We work with small software companies, generally bootstrapped companies and help them rapidly accelerate their growth generally through a combination of investing in sales and go-to-market, but also through really aggressive uh, M&A and strategic acquisitions. So that's very clear. Uh, It's different. And what we're going to get into a little bit is kind of what led you to that and um, why that matters. And and, uh, one of the things I'm very interested to, to talk to you about is what the results have been of focusing on this this sub market, if you will, within kind of the broader software space. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, Brian, I, I noted when we started, you were on the call one minute before, um, and <laughs> I was I was reminded of the fact that you were a captain in the Marine Corps. So one of my questions for you is, um, what did you learn in your role as a captain uh, that's been most relevant to your work with entrepreneurs? And I think the 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 management techniques, the leadership techniques that have been most helpful to me from the Marine Corps uh, in driving success with our companies has been uh, number one, having a bias for action. You know, as a Marine officer, you are trained to have a bias for action, for making decisions with often incomplete information. So that uh, a bias for action is is critical. Uh, You're also taught to always stay on offense Our companies are very aggressive. They don't sit back. Our goal for our companies is that they generate organic growth north of 
30% a year, and that they also complete at least one acquisition per year. Some of our companies will complete two or three, but I think staying on offense in our markets is critical. And then the, the final thing you really learn as a Marine officer is to uh, stay flexible. The, uh, the official motto of the Marine Corps is Semper Fidelis, which uh, means uh, always faithful, but the unofficial motto of the Marine Corps for those who have served is Semper Gumby, which means always flexible. Uh, businesses change, conditions change. You have to be always ready for what's around the corner. And, and I do think in the world of small high growth software businesses, that approach uh, that I learned in the Marine Corps and certainly uh, you know, is, is successful in the Marine Corps is really critical for, for leaders of companies of our size. So, so let's talk about this pivot that you had. Um, you, you, know, you, were, um, you come out of school and you go into the Marine Corps and, um, and I, I know you got into the, to the venture capital side of the business after doing some consulting, uh, but what was the shift, if you would, to take you from the private sector to getting tapped on the shoulder to move into a totally different world, which was the public sector? Uh, well, it wasn't something I'd ever planned to do. You know, I've always had a real passion for public service. And I had the, uh, the real honor of working with Charlie Baker at General Catalyst Partners in Cambridge uh, from 2011 until, until he became governor in 2014. He was an executive in residence at, at General Catalyst. I got a chance to see him in action. Uh, we invested in companies with him. He played a leadership role in a lot of our healthcare investments. I always told him that one day I hoped he would be governor. Uh, and if he did become governor, that I'd be, uh, you know, willing and interested in, in trying to help him out if he got himself uh, in a jam. Uh, so when uh, the MBTA imploded in the winter of 2015, which many of your your listeners will remember, that was Snowmageddon, as we called it then. There was over 100 inches of snow, which fell between February 11th, I believe, and about uh, February 28th. During that period, the temperature never got above 20 degrees, and you know the MBTA it failed in pretty spectacular fashion. What was obvious to folks looking at the T at that point were the operational issues. It was clear the trains weren't running. Uh, but the spring of, uh, of, of 2015, an independent panel took a look at the T and really identified some deeper financial issues in the organization that needed to be solved. In particular, uh, kind of an unsustainably growing operating deficit. The MBTA hadn't balanced its budget in more than a decade. Um, and there was a fiscal management control board created with a new position called the chief administrator. And the role of that position was to develop and execute a plan to deliver a balanced budget at the MBTA uh, and put the organization on the path to, to fiscal stability, which meant controlling cost and driving revenue. So that's the role that, uh, that Governor Baker asked me to, to fill and I agreed to do it and uh, spent two years on that project between uh, the summer of 2015 and the summer of 2017. So Brian, let me ask, what was the biggest surprise you had as a, as a, as a Marine captain, you know, who's been in the private sector, you sort of this make it happen, get things done environment that you're used to. Um, what, what happened and what was the big surprise for you uh, at being on kind of the other side of the fence? You know, my first experience in the, in the business world, uh, after uh, finishing up my time in the Marine Corps, I attended Harvard Business School, then I went to work for Bain Consulting. Uh, so I have always brought to our companies a real analytical approach around financial metrics and operating metrics. I think the biggest surprise for me running a public agency uh, was the lack of experience that the leadership of the agency had in using financial metrics to make decisions. 
Mm. I was I brought to the table an approach around monthly closes of the financials, which is something the MBTA had never done. We kicked off for the first time monthly budget reviews, where we went through with every every one of the 39 internal departments, every single element of cost and what was happening. And that was brand new for the organization. I mean, this was a $2 billion operating organization in which they weren't closing the books monthly. They weren't reviewing numbers on a real-time basis. And as a result, you know, costs were growing at about three times the rate of, of revenue. The good news is when you do bring a financial orientation into the organization, public or private, uh, you can have fairly you know, dramatic impacts quickly. You know, we, it took us about two years to deliver a balanced budget for the MBTA. We did it in 2018. And over that period, we focused on growing our cost base at no more than our rate of ridership growth, which is about, you know, about 1%. The result of that uh, was that the, the organization slowly balanced its budget. So I would say that bringing uh, an orientation towards using financial data to make decisions was the most important um, the most important lens I brought to the organization. And my biggest surprise was that the organization had never had monthly closes, monthly budget meetings, or really looked at financial information in a granular way. So Brian, there's a lot there. There's a lot in what you just said. Uh, first of all, it's a great example, not just for multi-billion dollar organizations, but when you're not accountable and your deficit spending, right, which can happen to anyone in kind of a temporary basis. But sure. if the culture is, it doesn't really matter, right? Mm -hmm. I.e. the Soviet Union or other, you know, other behemoths of the past, um, pretty soon, you know, you, you, a, a culture develops like no one cares. Mm -hmm. So just putting attention on it in and of itself, uh, I find that piece intriguing. But the, the connection many people might not realize, I know that in our industry, Brian, just in the in the world of sales enablement, we have competitors who've literally spent 10 times more money than we have to get to the same revenue that we've gotten to. Right. 10x. Right. That's a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes when you just have a lot of money sloshing around, um, it leads to the same kind of lack of discipline that you just mm -hmm. described and not paying attention to things the same way you do. Um, as when you're really carefully watching it every single month. I think sunshine is always, uh, you know, the, the best uh, disinfectant. And I found uh, that sitting every month with every department head looking at every number and really focusing on controlling cost growth while expanding service and delivering the best service we could for our riders had an amazing effect. And by the way, we do the same thing in our companies. You know, we do something called zero-based budgeting, which is every year, let's start from scratch. What yep. do we need to spend to deliver great software for, for, our, for our customers. And let's always be, be reevaluating that because costs only move one direction if they're not managed, right? I mean, the flywheel of cost always goes up and to the right if you're not looking at it. If you're focused on it and you're holding people accountable and as a leader, you're talking about it. I mean, we had over a hundred budget meetings at the MBTA in 2015 and 60 with not only our executive team, with our stakeholders, with our 17 unions, and we brief them every month and every quarter. And how is this organization doing in terms of trending towards a balanced budget that'll put us on a sustainable fiscal path? And that level of, of focus and transparency in any organization, public or private, I think can often drive uh, uh, kind of miraculous results financially because often organizations are 
spending a lot of money, there's a lot of input for things that do not have much output. And right. those are the areas generally of opportunity to say, what if we stopped doing this? Would anyone notice? Would our customers notice? Would we deliver a better service? Or are we simply doing this activity because we've always done it that way? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question uh, that needs, needs to be asked. And I know not every person that you interact with receives the message you've just delivered um, well. Some people are open to it, but you know, there's, there's this notion of the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. It's very easy to persevere in a fixed mindset when you're in kind of the deficit spending mode. Mm -hmm. So you know, when I think about the common denominators of what you've seen from your consulting days, what you've seen from your military days, and then from your venture capital days, if you had to boil it down, what are some of the biggest common denominators you look for in the people that you invest in? Well, if you look at our, our founders, our CEOs, these are individuals who have bootstrapped their companies. They have not built their companies with institutional venture capital. Um, generally, when we meet them, they're at 5 million or greater in revenue, which probably means they have 40 or 50 customers. So what I would say is the characteristic that defines them, because generally these are all B2B vertical market leaders. Yeah. Our, our founders have deep domain experience. These are seasoned domain experts that have written a piece of software, developed a piece of software, maybe with an outside partner, created a piece of software to solve a very specific business problem in their vertical. This is not tech geeks gone wild. These are seasoned <laughs> domain experts that are solving a very specific business problem in a vertical. For example, Titan Cloud Software in Nashville, Tennessee uh, has built the only multi-tenant enterprise-wide underground storage tank compliance platform for large convenience stores. That is a niche space, but no one in the world has thought about that problem as long as they haven't built a piece of software. So number one, I'd say deep domain experience. Uh, number two, I think our founders have an intuitive sense of exactly what their customers need and what they need to deliver to customers to have both pricing power and great retention. If yeah. you're funding your growth through the next customer you sign up versus through venture capital, the unit economics really matter. Yeah. And I think with our founders, they intuitively have a sense of, 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 of exactly what those customers need and how they can deliver something that's got 95 plus percent you know, retention and hopefully on an annual basis, you know, is kind of six to eight points of, of pricing power plus the ability to upsell. So I think the unit economics focus on these businesses because they're profitable or break even is critical. And then the other element I, I would say that flows through all of our founders, whether they're in the convenience store vertical or the midstream uh, ERP oil and gas vertical or the mortgage technology vertical, is they have a maniacal desire to win. They are relentless about winning in their markets. Part of the reason for that uh, is almost by definition, our companies are the, are the Davids fighting against the Goliaths. Every one of our companies is the five to $7 million ARR young up and comer competing against the 800 pound gorilla in their industry. Sometimes there are two or three 800 pound gorillas. Yep. So our founders are the small upstarts with the, with the slingshot, just dying to take out, you know, take out Goliath. And we try to help them do it. 
You know, Brian, as you're saying it, I have to tell you that what's really remarkable to me, having been through this process, um, I did. I know my co-founder knew what you're talking about with respect to unit economics, and he was explaining to me. He it was almost like, and and this may be relevant to some of your founders as well. Mm -hmm. um, my co-founder Yu Chun Li. It was as if he was dropping breadcrumbs for me. Right. Because I could only absorb so much information when he mm -hmm. said to me, no, you're going to be uh, we're going to be funding growth with new customers and this next customer is going to help fund the next piece of growth. It was mm -hmm. hard for me to really understand that, but it turns out it made all the difference in the world to to the bottom line and to not needing to take venture capital money prematurely. And it also means that you build a very sustainable and often superior business operating model. I mean, the beauty of founders that build one customer at a time and just intuitively know, well, every fourth or fifth customer I sign up, I can kind of hire another person, right? That's kind of the way they, they scale them up. What you find at scale is that even, uh, of the, even though they might only be in the five to $7 million revenue range, they're running in, in mid 80s gross margins and, and they're profitable. There's many businesses we see that have grown up with a lot of venture capital financing that don't have those unit economics because the structural foundation, the core operating model from the beginning, you know, wasn't set up that way. And those are hard things to change. So I think our, our founder businesses, even as they get to scale, I think have, have superior economics often because of the way they have bootstrapped themselves. So Brian, is it fair to say that uh, generally speaking, there aren't many hired guns uh, at the stage that you are interacting with founders, um, that they're either the CEO or the president, or they're, they're effectively running the company? Yeah, generally, um, in our case, the, we are backing an existing founder. We're providing liquidity um, so that he or she can take care of their family. We're providing growth capital. But generally, that founder we're backing, often we're augmenting them with, with professional management. A lot of bootstrap companies that are founder-led are going to be led by a founder who's either kind of comes from a product background or probably a sales background, one or the right. other. Right. And rarely have they invested in internal functions like uh, finance, FP&A, HR. So we often augment there. And we often also bring in a professional uh, head of sales or, or CRO uh, because our companies are vertical market leaders led by domain experts, often they have scaled because they're very well known in their vertical and people call them and that's how they generate revenue. And they generally haven't built a big uh, expensive outbound sales force. And what we do with them is we bring in a CRO, we bring in enterprise reps, we develop inside sales, we get them up on HubSpot or Marketo, we use Salesforce and we really, we build that. But at core, we're always building around that, that strong founder who's got a very clear sense of, of, of how they want to drive growth in their business. And we're going to help do it. And I'm curious how much of your value proposition is being able to have a, a very, I'll call it a personal connection um, with you and the rest of your team versus um, in some firms sort of you know, we have a giant portfolio. You're like three levels down with a junior partner kind of managing the account, so to speak. You know, we are a focused factory. Um, you know, I founded this firm and we have built this firm to focus on the smaller companies coming up. And what that means, it's a very concentrated portfolio. We're going to invest in seven or eight founders in each of our funds. And 
me personally, Mike Anello, Gabe Ling, my, my partners and co-founders are going to be very deeply involved with, with each of these companies. Uh, I'm a big believer when you talk to a founder who's never taken outside capital, that decision to take outside capital is, is a really big one. It's, it's a very personal one. Um, you know, and often there are family dynamics. I mean, bootstrap companies are often run by uh, father-daughter teams or brother-sister teams or yeah. father-son teams or yeah. grandfather-nephew teams. I mean, when you're, fat, when you're bootstrapping a business without outside resource, often there's a family dynamic. Um, you know, so often, you know, in our business, when we think about partnering with these companies, they're inviting you into their family. And yeah. we're probably uh, 80% uh, family psychiatrist and 20% high financier at, uh, at that point. Brian, uh, I want to just step back for a minute here. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking about this journey that you've been on. And I'm thinking about all of the different skill sets. You know, we call this the adapter's advantage. And so many people uh, that I get to talk to talk about sort of this processional effect of how they learned one thing and then they learned something else. And they're, they're, they're really lifelong learners. And, and when you think about the, the, uh, the journey that you've been on, what would you say has been the most important skill that you've learned that's really serving you now in this current role? I think the most important skill is, is empathy and an ability to connect with founders at their level and understand their problems. Because at the end of the day, we are in the business of helping them scale. We are trying to partner with founders that have never taken capital. And unless I can understand the problem they're trying to solve and show them how we can help them, I, I won't be successful. So another way to say that is it's, it's really that sales ability. I mean, we are in our business, it's the ultimate enterprise long-term sale. We right. have to convince a founder or a family that has been in business for 10 years and is running a wildly profitable growing business to take outside capital. That's a hard sell. Um, but I would say what, what has been most important in my career and certainly what we focus on with our sourcing team is the ability to connect with those people, the ability to sell them on, our, on the way that we can help. And that comes down to being a really good listener, understanding the problems they're trying to solve, which often are not financial, often yeah. they're other things there. My dad owns 40% of the business. He doesn't want to go do acquisitions and scale. I want to grow like crazy because I'm 35. My dad's 65 and wants to retire. Can you help me solve that problem? Oh, yeah. we can help you solve that problem. But I think for me, there are a lot of, of, of growth equity and venture capital and private equity funds out there that are continually calling on the company, kind of companies we call on. When I'm in front of a founder, I'm really focused on understanding the problem they're trying to solve and selling our ability to solve it. And if you can do that successfully in our part of the business, um, I think you can, you can find great companies. And that's the most important skill uh, for what we do. And it's the most important skill we try to teach our, our young people from a sourcing standpoint. It turns out that skill transcends so many different elements and so many job descriptions today. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just Brene Brown, talking about this topic, but, you know, in the final analysis, uh, whether it's with your doctor, uh, whether it's with any, any professional, whether it's in the business of selling software, the, the ability to truly have empathy for what is the, what is the problem at hand here? 
and quite frankly, am I qualified to help you so to solve it, right? Um, so it's really good to hear that this, this trend uh, is making it to the, the, the venture capital business. And, you know, I, I'll bet there'll be some of your Marine buddies who would be surprised to hear that, yeah, Brian said empathy is one of the most important things, <laughs> right? Uh, so so I, I will tell you, um, I love the story of, of M33. So can you just remind people the origin of this name? Uh, well, when we were putting uh, the firm together, Gabling, Mike and Ello and I, we had all worked together at, at General Catalyst. At General Catalyst, we had focused on these small, high growth bootstrap businesses. And we always kind of talked with our companies about reaching escape velocity, right? When you're a small business with great customer relationships and great retention, the risk usually isn't that you're going to go out of business. Most of them don't. They're unlevered. They're profitable. The risk is that five years later, they're still a small business, right? right? So how do you reach escape velocity? How do you get from the $5 million revenue business to the $20 million revenue business? That's reaching escape velocity, getting to scale. Um, so when we founded M33, we, we thought a lot about reaching escape velocity. Mach 33 is a, is a physics term. That is the speed at which an object escapes the gravitational pull of the earth. Um, so we founded the firm calling it Mach 33. Uh, and then uh, when I ran it by my wife, she thought it sounded like a Gillette uh, razor blade. <laughs> I think she we, was right. <laughs> she was probably right. She usually is. And she suggested we drop the mock and call it M33 and M33 growth was born. But, uh, but the concept's the same. We're helping small companies reach escape velocity and become big companies. It's a great metaphor, Brian. And in fact, just sometimes, you know, the subversive element in marketing is by dropping something, it, it creates the, the opening to ask, and what does that mean? And, mm -hmm. and I'm a, I'm a big believer in that concept. I know I've, I've, uh, I've experienced it at different levels. It's almost like in physics, you know, there's only one escape velocity, but I, what I've seen is as you move along the path, there's uh, the same gravitational pull that holds you down um, you have to break through it and then you get to another one and then there's another set of inertia that forms like a different type of gravitational right, pull. Right. You got to break through that one. So it's, it's, uh, it, it's a good concept to be thinking about. Um, and and when, you, when you play this out, though, what, what has been the biggest difference between the firms who achieve escape velocity? They basically break out of the category or the class and become the leader. I would say that it is that it is that maniacal desire to win and that relentless focus on, on, on leaning forward. For example, doing acquisitions are hard. Integrating companies are hard. Our companies are generally small and they're acquiring smaller companies. We have businesses that have completed three acquisitions in a year, tripled their size. That takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of really leaning forward because again, you're you're always making decisions with incomplete information. But I'd say the companies that, that do break out are the companies that, that have that bias for action, have that bias to take the risk, let's go for it, let's not hang back, you know, let's not be complacent. And they really want to win. You know, every one of them generally is competing <clears throat> against a big player in their space who they really want to beat. Uh, yeah. And I would say, you know, organic growth is critical. It's, it's really important what we do. Uh, but if you can combine organic growth with with acquisitions, you can find yourself with businesses that are three, four, five times larger 
over the course of three years than they were when they started. But that takes a tremendous amount of, of hunger, uh, of desire, uh, of 100 hour weeks, uh, and a real passion, a passion for, you know, for winning versus kind of hanging back and coasting. Um, and, and, you know, our, our founders that are successful are the ones that wake up every day and just want to go for it. I think I may know what you're going to say to this one, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. My last question for you, uh, I, I always like to ask about what's the most important skill that you think entrepreneurs need to learn or to improve. So the most important skill, um, we've talked a lot here about the decision-making ability, and, and which of course is a skill in of itself, but what do you believe? Is it that or is it something else in terms of the most important skill that you believe founders need to learn or improve? I would say it's flexibility and an ability to change your mind or your course when the facts change. Markets don't stand still. Markets move fast. Your competitors move fast. Things happen. So I think our most successful entrepreneurs are, are able to flex and to pivot as they need to, because very rarely if you look back on the preceding year and you grab the board book from December of 2020 and you say, hey, here's all the things we thought were going to happen in 2021. Hey, what, you know, what happened? You know, what you find is none of that stuff happened, but five other things happened. And yes. the real question is how fast, how fast can you pivot? How flexible are you? And how quickly can you adapt yourself to changing market conditions? There was a major economic shock in March of 2020 mm -hmm. that turned upside down many plans, strategies of, of many companies and software. But there was a lot of winners in that, in that time that pivoted yeah. to very quickly you know, adapt and, and deliver customers what they needed. So what I would say to any founder running a high growth business is, uh, is, is most of the things you think will happen next year won't, and a lot of stuff you don't think will happen will, and you're gonna be successful to the extent you can continually be pivoting and kind of changing your opinion and your path based on the facts and based what's happening in, in your market. I heard what you just said put well by a member of my management team who said, as he pounded his fist in a meeting, he said, I'm putting a stake in the ground, but it's in sand. So, <laughs> so that's kind of the, Sem that's the Sem idea. Semper Gumby. Semper Gumby, man. Semper Always Gumby. flexible. That's it. No, I think that's going to be the, the, uh, Escape Velocity and Semper Gundy are going to be the-, the Gumby, the yeah, Gumby, stone. like a Gumby bear. Semper yeah, Gumby. Like, Semper Gumby. That's, I didn't realize that's a- Yeah, Semper Gumby. Think of a Gumby bear. That's how but, flexible you've got to be in uh, you know, the kind of markets we play in. I love it. Well, Brian, listen, this has been a real pleasure. It's been great to uh, get to know more about your story, to learn more about M33 growth and this really unique approach to the market that you have. Um, for people who want to learn more about the firm or more about you, what's the best way to do that? Well, please uh, check out our website, which is m33growth.com. Uh, check us out on LinkedIn. Ping me an email anytime. My email's on there. Uh, we love talking to founders and helping them uh, solve the problems they're facing. And Mark, I want to thank you. It's a great podcast. I love listening. I hope your viewers find this interesting. And I hope everyone listening has an awesome uh, 2022 and uh, continues along the, uh, the entrepreneur's path. Brian, a real pleasure chatting with you. Um, more to come on this. I definitely look forward to continuing your conversation and, and hope to be able to collaborate any way that we can help support your entrepreneurs uh, in the portfolio companies. Uh, happy to do that. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. 
You've been listening to The Adapter's Advantage, a podcast from Alego. Stay connected by subscribing to the show at alego.com forward slash podcast, leaving us a rating and comment and sharing episodes you love. That helps us bring you more conversations about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember that one new idea can change your life.